Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. StoryCraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. Welcome in to the StoryCraft Cafe. I am your host, Hank Garner, and boy, do we have a fantastic show for you today. Audrey Burgess stops by to talk about writing romance with a touch of magic, and we talked about satire and a lot, a lot of other fun stuff in this episode. I know you're really going to love it. I mentioned in the previous episode that later this week we would hear from Rhett Bruno, and we did do a live hangout this week at Storycraft.cafe with Rhett, and then we had some uh, technical difficulties. You know, we were about three quarters of the way through the interview, and uh, Rhett's internet connection dropped out, so actually this coming week, we're going to do another live hangout at storycraft.cafe, and it's going to be Thursday the 9th. Go to storycraft.cafe, and you can, you know, watch it live there, interact with people just like you who are interested in the writing life, and we're going to continue that conversation with Rhett, so, you know, hopefully we get, uh, you know, another uh, 45 minutes to an hour with Rhett and you know we all get some bonus time with Rhett talking about the future of sci-fi and the present state of publishing and things that he sees on the horizon lots of great stuff in that episode so be sure to join us at storycraft.cafe stay tuned now we're going to hear from Audrey Burgess And welcome into the Storycraft Cafe. I'm your host, Hank Garner. Today, I am super excited to have Audrey Burgess on the show with me uh, to talk about her brand new book, The Minuscule Mansion of Myra Malone. What a fun title for a book and uh, what a great book it is. Um, when, when I was trying to come up with kind of a, a, a title for this episode, um, it and I had I had just read the book and and I said writing romance with a touch of magic and that was it's so much more than that though and uh, that's what I wanted to talk about today so welcome to the show Audrey thank you so much for having me I'm delighted to be here I'm excited to have you um, Audrey we have been um, starting uh, some shows off lately with with a fun question to just kind okay. of get the conversation started and there's yeah. one that I've really enjoyed asking people lately okay. and um and we'll just see what you have to say about it but is there a piece of writing advice that you have gotten over the years um, that either was such a fantastic piece of advice that you're super happy that you got it and you refer back to or is there a piece of advice that is so horrible that that you just shake your head at and think, why would anybody ever believe that? Oh man, I could I could fill a whole day talking about I, know, right? I should probably say I was raised by English teachers. So this is a rich vein of, of right. lifetime, you know, subject matter. Um I I think probably the um 
though I, I guess I, I guess it would characterize it as a bad piece of advice um, to the extent that it is advice. Is the um, just anything that that is based on the idea that there are hard and fast rules with writing. I think people get. Um, especially when they're starting out or if they've come from a particular kind of technical writing or they were, I'm a lawyer, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, formulaic writing, very, very specific formulas. There's a real tendency to kind of, you know, you never use passive voice or you, um, you always, you know, don't start a sentence with a preposition. Don't, you know, all of the yeah, kinds of things that are very, you know, strong and white um, grammatical kind of rules. And, um, I think that there are there's a lot of power in playing with those. I, I write a lot of, in addition to um, uh, to novels, I write a lot of short fiction and humor and satire, and uh, and the short stuff. I think the closest kind of analog to anything. Um, like it is like poetry. I can't write poetry. I'm terrible at it. But the rules are kind of the same, where you kind of have yeah. have to be flexible. Um, because you've got so little space to get to the the meaning of what you're trying to get across. Right. So for me, anything that kind of is, is this rigid, like thou shalt not, um, I really shy away from. Um, and there was there were rules that I used to consider. You know, I, I remember you know things that I think everybody has types of styles that they find distracting. So the thing that pops into my head as a you know former English major is I used to find Faulkner really uh, distracting the way he never used. Um, uh, quotation marks. It was always dashes. And I thought, that's so distracting. I, I would hate doing that. And then I read The Particular Sadness of Lemon Cake by Amy Bender, who does that same thing in a way that is utterly and totally consistent with the story. It's probably, I, I don't think I could, I could have read it the same way if she'd done it the way you would have expected her to. So I think that you really have to give yourself permission to break the rules a little bit it's important to know what the rules are i think but um but i do think um anyone that insists no you can never you never do it that way or you always have to land your arc in this particular way or um you know i i, I find that to be um probably the worst advice <laughs> you, you talked about um your the influence of your parents and both of your parents are linguists is that right <laughs> Yes. So they, when I was growing up, they were uh, English teachers. We actually okay. lived in this teeny tiny town on the edge of the Navajo reservation in Northern Arizona. So if you've read anything about Lake Powell that's drying out right now, that's where I grew up. And um, then okay. they went to graduate school to become linguists when I was in junior high and, and, and became linguists after that. Yeah. Okay. Do, do you, um, I guess what, let's see, how do, how do I say this? Um, you, um, when did you know that you wanted to be a writer? Like, was that, <laughs> was this something that, that was always ingrained in you? And in, if so, if he, if you kind of had this inkling from an early age, what were, what were your parents, uh, response to this? And did they, did they feed the, the creative need? You know, if you, if you think about it, uh, it would be easy to, to think, well, well, they probably had an, an academic um, <laughs> outlook on it. And, and, you know, that doesn't always feed, feed the creative side, but sure. what was it like in your family? Um, so my parents were always very encouraging and I was one of those 
kids that just knew I, I always wanted to write. I always, so we, we, in this teeny tiny town, there was a, there was a kid's corner in the local newspaper. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the Lake Powell Chronicle, I think. Um, and so I submitted poetry, um, almost prescient. I think the first thing I published was, uh, can't you see I'm trying, which was just a really, you know, right. kid, kid kind of screed about no one, you know, really not being treated well. Um, and then I wrote my first uh, book there. We had a, a book contest at my elementary school. And so in third grade, I wrote a book called The Dragon Who Couldn't Fly. And I illustrated it. It was a chapter book. It was, you know, each chapter was a page. Um, and my mom actually put it in a binding and she put my school picture in it and wrote an about the author section and made it into a real book. And she still has it. She still has. Awesome. We did that like every, um, I think, third grade, fourth grade and fifth grade that um, that was a competition. And they um, they did that every time. So it was always something that they actively encouraged, um, which is not to say that they because they were English teachers, it's not to say that I would write something and I would take it to them and be like, this is super, honey. This is the best thing ever. Don't change a thing. It was always like, this is super. Now let's rip it back. It needs to be about 50% shorter. And here's how you do that. And so, um, but they were always hugely encouraging and, and still are. I mean, um, and, and because I was raised by kind of language nerds, I've described to people that my um, my parents were in graduate school when I was still in school and my brothers were still in school. We were all in junior high and elementary. And we would have the side of our dining room just filled with this big um, piece of butcher paper that you'd slice off. Yeah. And they were using it to diagram sentences, really huge sentence trees all the way down from one side of the wall to the other. And um, so we were, ju- we were just a family of language nerds. Um, we were, you know, people who loved reading about the history of words and where they came from. And we loved puns. We were really insufferable to be around if you were not a language person. And um, and I think all of that, yeah, I think all of that just kind of made its way into, <laughs> into who I became um, so for better or for worse. That is so fun. Um, <laughs> besides the minuscule mansion of Myra Malone, um, this is your, your first novel, is that right? But you have- The first run- published one, yes. Okay. But- <laughs> That's that's a great point. I'm, I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. But sure. you've also written a ton of shorter fiction, satire, mm-hmm. short stories. Um, tell me about your love of satire, because it it seeps into this book so deeply. Um, and then looking over some of the, the shorter works that you've done, I can tell this is a real passion. Yeah. Um, where did your love of satire come from? So I always read it. I, I think probably the the outlet that I read most and all through college and high school and everything like I'm not not high school, but college and law school. Um, I was a diehard McSweeney's reader. And so when I wrote the first book, which I didn't wind up being successful, I wound up shelving it. I was trying to, you know, I, I had read about what you should do if you're trying to publish a book. And one of them was, one of the tips was you, you start building a platform. And so I thought, okay, well, you know, I, I, I read a lot of McSweeney's. I'll write, I'll write something for McSweeney's and I'll send yeah. something to McSweeney's. And I did. And they have the kindest rejections in the business. And I know that 
over and over and over again because I got a lot of them um, to start. And um, but because I started publishing humor and kind of short, funny stories in various outlets, um, kind of started to build both that audience and also mm-hmm. just that voice, um, which had always kind of right. been there. I always, even even in dark things that I wrote, there was you know, kind of gallows humor and that kind of thing. So I, I'm one of those people that, you know, if I'm standing in line at the grocery store, I'll find something funny to read or I'll, yeah. you know, if I'm on my kids' floors at night, I'm scrolling through. Um, and I, uh, I really enjoy well done satire and, and humor in generally. And of course, when you're a parent, um, you're often desperately looking for, um, for those moments of going, oh, I feel seen. This person has been through this yeah. same thing I've been through. <laughs> so I started writing those things. Um, and it just kind of, it, came, it became, it was originally, I'll do that for this book. And then it kind of became its own thing. And so because I did so much of it, by the time I started writing The Mansion, it really started to inflect kind of the way that I, I structured that book and the way that I um, kind of painted the characters and everything else. Um, and I'm also the kind of person that I, I really enjoy uh, writing that has, even, even in a, I think that brings more depth to even a tragic storyline. Yeah. Because there's no such thing I mean, there are certainly such things as unmitigated tragedies, but there's, um, I think it ignores a lot of the richness of the human experience if you make it, you know, <laughs> there, sometimes you've got to admit that even in that dark moment, somebody's going to crack a joke. And yeah. and so, um, so that does tend to make its way into my writing. Well, and, and I tend to think, um, and, and we can debate on whether humor and satire are the same thing, if they're close cousins. Right. You know, but a lot of times if you if you've got a story or a book that's really intense, um, one of the best ways to kind of let the reader off the hook a little bit mm-hmm. and to let their adrenaline come down is to yeah. offer a moment of levity, yeah. something to to let them feel safe again right. is one way to put it. And and then when you come back with a really tense scene or maybe it's a thriller or, a, you know, a, a murder mystery or something. Then when when it becomes grave again, mm-hmm. it's almost like it punches twice as hard because you right. let you've given your reader a chance to catch their breath and you know right. kind of come down from it. Um, by the same token, a lot of times uh, satire can tell the truth uh, in a in a more palatable way. If you can right. make someone chuckle with it, um, a lot of times you can slide in things that are maybe difficult to swallow, you know, a little, uh, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Right. You know, it, exactly. Looking at it. So do do you, when you're writing satire, mm-hmm. um, are you thinking, uh, about a point that you're wanting to drive home and thinking of, of new inroads to you know, how, what, what's your process for, yeah you know, kind of seeing the the truth that needs to come out, but maybe taking a different tact with it. Yeah. So I would say it kind of depends on the structure of the piece that I'm planning to put together. And sometimes, sometimes the piece doesn't know what structure it's going to have until I actually right. start writing it. And I kind of, I, I, I'm one of those writers that once I, once I have a framework, like I have the spine of what I'm going to do, I can, I can throw a skeleton on that thing really, really fast. I just have to know what, what the framework is. And so um, with, 
with satire and with humor writing, um, sometimes, rarely, but um, sometimes I start with a title. A lot of a lot of satire writing and humor writing classes will advise people come up with the title first because that's your that's right. your concept and that's your hook. Um, I'm pretty bad at that. I've gotten better at it in certain respects, but I think one of the reasons that I don't do it as much as some other writers that I know who are really good at it, I don't write much timely humor. And by timely humor, I mean like the ripped from the headlines, like this just happened in the news 24 hours ago and I'm writing this, you know, kind of political satire and that kind of, I am, I'm not good at that. I, I do write pieces fast sometimes, but it's very rare that I can write them that fast. And I also, usually if something in the news grabs me, um, I'm a little too close to it. And, and, <laughs> and that rage comes through the piece in a way that doesn't sound like me. And so a lot of what I write is, um, is what are called evergreen pieces, pieces that will last for a while. And then it really is just like, I, I write a lot of list pieces that are comparisons. So like, are you, I think the most recent one I wrote was, um, are you decorating for the holidays with children or starring in a heist movie? Um, and it was kind of a juxtaposition of the nightmare of trying to put up Christmas lights with kids and dealing with the Christmas tree versus this kind of Ocean's Eleven, Elliot Gould character narrating. Um, and and those are those I do a lot. And it usually is in those situations, I'm thinking of the structure. First. I'm thinking of, okay, I have this thing that is driving me personally crazy right now. Right. Um, right. What's the most apparently dissimilar thing I could compare it to that actually has a lot in common with it? Um, <laughs> And so, so in those situations, I'm usually thinking of the of comparison. When I'm writing a more narrative piece, um, I'm usually starting from the the concept of of what kind of strikes me as funniest. Um, and I, I I've taught a couple classes on revising humor, and one of the things that has kind of interested me is that depending on on how you trained as a writer or where you did most of your writing before you started writing satire. Um, whatever your funniest line is will be in a different place. So for example, most of the writing that I've done has been as a lawyer um, before I started writing creatively. And so, and as a lawyer, you make the point first and then you support everything. Right. Um, when you're an English major, when you're writing a, you know, academic analysis or something like that, you make all your points first because you're building to your point and then you put your point at the end. If you're a technical writer, you're usually doing point, justification, point, justification, point. And so your where your strongest line is, which actually usually needs to be your first line or even your title, will often be drawn from where your experience is from structuring writing. And so um, I have gotten pretty good at identifying fairly early on in a draft where I'm where the strongest idea is coming from. And I let that guide the rest of the piece. So um so and, and I also have little things that I'll, I'll I'll call back to from earlier pieces. And in the last few pieces I've written, I've I've had this little girl um, named Persimmon who keeps popping back up between her mom are really insufferable. And they're just you know just fun kind of Easter eggs for me that you know I yeah. put in from time to time. So it's um, it really just depends on how I'm what it, what messages is that I want to get across, um, and what makes me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> And it usually starts, especially when it's a parent a parenting piece. It usually starts from um, whatever has frustrated me most in the past week. Is your creative process different? It's obviously different, but how is it different when you're writing a short piece or maybe a a piece of short fiction mm -hmm. versus a satirical um, piece? 
uh, versus a long form novel? Um, do you do you approach those three projects in in different ways? Do you do you come to the page the same with them? And then um, I, I guess what I'm asking is, does does the idea dictate the form or are there just ideas and then you need to write to kind of figure out where this thing lives? So it's kind of a combination of both. Um, I actually have joked that I, I seem to have this no man's land um, between about 800 words and 80,000 words. I can't, I don't, I don't have anything in between there. I always wind up. Yeah. And so, you know, when I see these, you know, short story contests and they're like, send us your best 4,000 word piece. And I'm like, I don't have that. And I've got novels and I don't have anything. And, I think they call it famine or feast. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You're either going to get a few words or a whole lot of them. Right. Uh, and so a lot of times it's, I think it's probably, I, I don't think I've had the experience yet, given the, given the breadth of that no man's land. I don't think I've had the experience yet where I start writing a story and I'm like, oh, no, wait, this isn't a flash story. This is a novel, um, especially because the arc is so much bigger. So, so when I, when I have that, you know, 700, 800 words to play with, I know where I need to land. And I really, I start planning that out before I start writing. Um, with novels, I kind of, I have, I kind of go back and forth. So I have books. Mansion was a really fast, uh, fast writing experience. I wrote it really, really quickly. And that's because once I realized what it was, which was about 1200 words in, I started, I started writing it as a romantic comedy. That was my initial intent. Um, and then I very quickly learned that that, that wasn't what it was going to be <laughs> about, about uh, two chapters, uh, second or third chapter when Myra's you know, a little girl and she's putting the dollhouse in the attic. She sees a reflection of her own eye and it winks at her. Um, and she doesn't know how to wink. That sentence kind of popped into my head, fully formed. And when that happened, I knew immediately what had happened. And then it was just a, a question of kind of stepping back from that to figure out how to get to where I knew I was going to go. But I've had the the book that's coming out after. Um, it, there's a the first chapter of it is in the back of the mansion. It's called A House Like an Accordion. That did not come out that way. So I, I went into it, it kind of similarly with a different idea of where it was going to be um, and got about halfway through it and thought, this, this is going a different direction than I, this is this, the original idea I had is not true to how these characters are starting to interact. And so I, I wound up having to go back and kind of tease things out a little bit and restructure and figure out how I was going to, um, how I was going to put that together. And so it, it really, I'm, I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not a plotter, so I'm not good at outlining. I do, especially after the first couple of books, I started trying to at least write the synopsis first, mostly because I hate it so much, um, but also because then it's done and I give myself permission to deviate and I always deviate, but I at least yeah. have a starting point. Um, and then I, I will often, if I, if I hit a snag when I'm otherwise, you know, clicking along pretty well, mm -hmm. I'll put a bracket um, that says something like, you know, insert explanation for this here or that kind of thing. And I'll close the bracket and then go to the, the next idea I have and then go back and fill in the blanks later. 
Um, there's only really, I think there's been one book that I've written so far that really was a very linear experience from beginning to end. And it was the book I had the idea for while I was writing House Like an Accordion. And I yeah. made myself wait until I finished House Like an Accordion because I knew if I went for the bright and shiny new idea, I would not finish the idea that was giving me more trouble. Um, so by the time I got to it, it came out just in kind of just one linear piece. But that was really probably the only time that happened. So um, that was a long answer to a short question. No, no, that's, that's, that's fine. Um, I love uh, books like this. Uh, and I love the idea of, um, of a, a story that is, that is rooted and grounded in, um, in what feels like just could be normal everyday life. Yeah. And then weird, odd things yeah. start happening. And, um, kind of like if, if there's a veil between this life and whatever right. else is there, like, it's just, you, you, you find places where it's a little thinner and, right. and you can see the other, you know, exactly. world or whatever. I love stories like that. I Me love too. feeling that, that, that the world is, is tangible. Like this yes. is a world I could live in, but strange things can happen. Yeah. I, I love that, you know, and the, to me, this very much felt like, um, uh, like a Neil Gaiman book or like, like he's a master of, <laughs> of just kind of blending the mundane with, the uh, with the fantastical in, yeah. in little subtle ways in a, in a lot of, uh, ways. And I just love that. Uh, Thank you. What, what are your ideas? Like before you started writing this book, was that something you were interested in? Did, did those types of stories intrigue you? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, I always have. And I, you know, I, of course I grew up reading, you know, everything I could get my hands on in terms of, you know, read all the Tolkien, read all Lion, Witch of the Wardrobe, all every possible foundation, you know, a Wrinkle in Time, every possible fantastical kind of book you could think of. Um, and then uh, when I got older, uh, I read a lot of it, loved Neil Gaiman, loved uh, Sarah Addison Allen, yeah. loved Amy yeah. Bender. And I really, for me, the thing that I really love about that kind of near, near magic, right? Yeah. The real yeah. world, but just little bits of magic is that it's not, it's not just that it, um, that there's that sense of like the, the world's kind of thinning in between. Yeah. I, this is going to sound weird. It also makes this world more magical for me because there are moments that yeah. I, I'll notice something and I'll be like, Oh my God, that's, that's this, you know, I, um, I'll, I'll give you a really weird example. I haven't told anybody this. Um, so I, when I was writing, I had sold the mansion. We, we'd gone through edits. Um, I was working with a museum. Okay. Um, that, uh, is an old, uh, probably 1840s house. And I had never actually toured the house myself. So I got taken on this tour and I, I went up to this upstairs bedroom and it had a fireplace and it was a marble fireplace. And in front of the fireplace were these two uh, kind of Florentine tapestry chairs. And next to one of the chairs was a dusty rose pink hat box. And right outside in the hallway was a huge shiffer rug that was so huge that they'd had to cut into the floorboards to make fit. And it was literally wow. the pieces. It was like, I, I took pictures of them all and I sent them to my agent. I said, I can't believe this. <laughs> this room really exists. Like this, these pieces really exist. Um, and so um, another example is that when I wrote the, um, the Minuscule Mansion, 
I, I was a person that was always fascinated with miniatures. I loved miniatures, but I didn't have a dollhouse. I didn't have miniatures growing up. Um, I was just the kind of person that if I saw them in museums or anything like yeah. that, I had yeah. dragged away from them. And so I started following them a lot more after I wrote the book. And a friend of mine who was reading an early draft said, These, this really reminds me of this museum that my dad used to take me to when I was a kid that had the, this lady made these miniature rooms and it's called the Thorn Galleries. I've never heard of these before. And it's in Chicago and it's these little period miniature rooms. Mm -hmm. And um, of course I was poring over the pictures and just fascinated. But one of the things that fascinated me about it was that the woman who made them was very insistent that they were not for dolls. People would ask her to put dolls in these rooms and she would say, no, that's not what this is. These are miniature rooms. They are not intended for dolls. And she sounded like Myra. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> that's really. So those kinds of, I think, I think I'm kind of, I'm the kind of person that I, I, I'm primed to notice details. I collect them. I put them in my notes app. I think about them weird little facts of the way animals interact or things like that. And so because I'm always noticing those anyway, I, I tend to, my husband teases me because I'll always say, I don't, I don't believe in science, but he'll be like, you absolutely freaking believe in science. You, <laughs> you say you don't believe in science, but you totally believe in science. So um, I do, I do think that it kind of uh, increases the magic yeah. yeah yeah that i that i'm primed to notice yeah 100 percent. and do you feel like that being the kind of person that notices those little details as a writer does that skill or quirk or whatever you want to you know call it do you think that helps um yeah. because like for instance if 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 you're reading a book and and the you come away with this feeling that man, the world building was just magical in this, you know, I felt so immersed and then you go back and you kind of look at it and you think, well, well, it's, it's not that I was overwhelmed with details about the yeah. world. It's just the details that, that the writer gave me. Yes. Was so important. Yes. It, you know, it, it's like, it's not that you need to describe every tapestry right. that, that you come in contact with this. You need to find the things that stand out. And yeah, yeah. A, yes. Like, I'm sorry. I'm like, that skill. Oh, yes. No. Uh, yeah. I, th that is exactly right. And actually it's really funny. You should say that because um, like one of the things that I think does that really well is Erin um, Morgenstern's The Night Circus. Yes. When she's describing the, the thing that always, I always think about um, are the, the circus exhibits and the clocks. And if you go back to that book, you will actually notice, because of course I reread it constantly, um, it, she doesn't actually go into the degree of detail that you have in your head. You will realize, right. if you look at it, you're like, I filled this in in my head. Exactly. And when I was first querying the mansion, I had a couple of people, a couple of agents say, you know, I really, I, I want more detail about what the house actually looks like and what it, you know, and I didn't do that on purpose. I wanted right. everybody to kind of have their own version of what this, and that's what I've actually really loved. And um, my UK publisher, Pam Mac, um, Pam McMillan, uh, Jillian Green, my editor, sent me pictures of what she had kind of pictured the mansion to look like because they were commissioning a miniaturist to make furniture from the house for the cover. And when they were doing that, it, just hearing, like, she's like, I always kind of pictured it this way and it had the gingerbread trim. And, 
everybody just has their own image of what this place looks like, what it right. sounds like when the music is playing with. And I, I love that. I love, I think Myra would love that, that there's, yeah. there's not just one world, there's everybody's version of what this world is like. Um, and that's a, just a hugely ma like magical experience for me as a reader. I just absolutely love realizing the craftsmanship that goes into giving me just enough to work with right. to kind of hang my own my own details on it. I feel the same way about like when somebody will ask me like if it was the movie, you know, who would you cast? And I'm like, on the one hand, I'm like, yeah, I ha kind of have that idea. But on the other hand, when I read someone say that about a book that I've loved, I'm always like, no, that's not who that is. <laughs> now I'm going to picture right. that when I read it next time. So, you know, I do, um, I think that that is, I think that's something Neil Gaiman does really well. Yeah. Um, something that um, Amy Bender does really well. And I, I don't necessarily, I don't know if it's something that I even necessarily did consciously or that they did consciously. But for me, it's, um, you just, you have to give people just enough to play with because that's what yeah. makes it theirs. Um, another example is uh the Golem and the Ginny is another good yeah. example to me of that, where it's just the the way the way they describe the way Helene Wecker describes making the um, the figurines, the the working with gold and everything like that. Just I just love that. <laughs> you mentioned um, earlier uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the the mm -hmm. Narnia Chronicles, uh, it, and also, also Lord of the Rings. And yes. if we if we think about that, Lord of the Rings is a is a completely different fantasy world with yes. middle earth and and we have elves and orcs and hobbits and 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 magic and then we have um uh the 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 world of narnia would and that is a a portal fantasy it's another right. place that exists that you can go to right. and we have these magical creatures and the whole world is built on magic and and it's a completely immersive experience yes. you 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 leave here and go to this fantasy world yes. You know, um, whereas your book is, like we mentioned, it is our world with some magic sprinkled, um, right. for for lack of a better word. How do you how do you decide what what the level of magical immersion is, and is this do do you like create fantasy? um rules for for your world and can anyone tap into this is it is it just this uh this special person that that can like do, do you wrestle with those with the rules of it as you're writing so yes i did i do and, and that's um, and and all of the all of the novels that i write have that kind of thread of magic and figuring out the rules of of how things work is um is important to me i because i don't like that experience as a reader that when i finish a book and i'm like oh i really liked that and then an hour later i'm like wait a second how how does that work and i think sometimes people are going to have that experience no matter what you do because they're going to find you know holes in what you constructed no matter what sure. um but and the other balance is um and this is tricky with kind of near near reality is if if you go too far into those details you do wind up with a lord of the rings right there's no, right. There's no way to kind of go too far into the structure of how something works without turning into something else which is a long-winded way of saying there's a sequel to the mansion <laughs> I was into that a little more um 
Uh, and so, uh, but that's, that is something that um, I do kind of, it's, it's one of those things I think about like when I'm on a long drive or when I'm staring at my ceiling at night or something like that, where I'm kind of thinking through, I mutter under my breath a lot when I'm, when I'm kind of planning those things out, which my husband and kids kind of tease me about like when <laughs> the first book that I wrote actually had a, um, a forest fire in it. And we were, my husband and I were driving to work one day and he heard me kind of muttering, how many have to die? Nine, I think nine have to die. That'd be, and he's like, if anyone didn't know that you were a writer overhearing this. So I, you know, I have, I have those kinds of things that I'm kind of yeah. working through in my head the whole time just to kind of figure out the, the structure of how that, that magic works. Um, and sometimes I, some, sometimes I have to revisit that. Um, I'll, I'll go, when I go back through what I've put together, I go, oh, no, that's, that's not consistent or it's not consistent with what I think I'm going to do with this story next or that kind of thing. So um, it, it's kind of a, kind of a balance because again, the other, the other thing you have to balance is that same factor of trying to keep a little bit of mystery, trying to let the reader fill in some of the blanks, um, right. that kind of thing. So I have a question that I, I love to ask people um, because I, I've done almost 1300 uh, author interviews and, and everybody's answer is, is different. Um, but in, in your creative life, um, there's a moment of creation where at, at one moment, the, the minuscule mansion of Myra Malone does not exist in any form or fashion. Mm -hmm. And then either a character walks onto the stage of your mind or you start playing the what if game. Uh, maybe you see something and it just, you know, kind of starts the, the, the process or you read a news article and, and then characters tend to, you know, move right. into your brain and they well, who are these people and what are they up to? And, um, you know, and then at, at some point the book does exist and then it's your job as a writer to dig that thing out of the ground, dust it off, polish it up, and more pressure. And, 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 yeah, and and to bring this story to life. But what is that? Is there a a typical moment of creation for you? Is it all different? But or is there like a a common flash that happens with you when this thing is birthed? been different with every book um and i will tell you the weird thing about the mansion because it is the only time that i've written anything not just a novel but satire um short story anything that the title came to me first i i usually really really struggle with titles um but when i was uh, talking to some friends of mine we all met when we, when I was working on that first book, we were all trying to get into pitch wars together. We became friends over Twitter um, many years ago. And I was chatting with them about the fact that I was still, was getting good feedback on that first book, but it was much darker. And people were saying, it's not consistent with the voice that you've built. We're not quite sure how we'd commission, you know, how we'd kind of position this in the market. And so I was like, I, was, I need to write something like lighthearted and um, you know, I write a lot of lighthearted stuff. I should be able to do this. And I was just kind of thinking about ideas and I, um, I followed a lot of people, actually I know a lot of writers that uh, make miniatures that buy kits or they modify kits and they make, and 
because of algorithms, I was getting fed more and more of those when I was spending time on yeah. social media during the pandemic. And so I had an idea. I'm like, that that's what I'll do. I'll have I'll have a miniaturist. Maybe she sells these kits or, you know, something, but she's but this is what she does. She kind of sticks to herself and she's kind of, you know, introverted and and this, you know, that goes on the internet and goes viral and it's gonna be a meet cute and be a love story. Yeah. Um, and when I was kind of, I was like, well, what, you know, what's something I could do with that? The title came to me immediately. And I and I immediately sent to my friends, I'm like, the minuscule mansion in my room alone you know, introverted 30 something, stays at home with her miniatures, goes viral, meets a guy, turns into a thing. And they're like, that sounds funny. You should start writing that. And so I did. And then like 50,000 words came out in a few <laughs> weeks. It just kind of went all, all at once. Um, but it wasn't that, you know, it, it wound up not, I did not go in planning for it to be magical. That happened with that wink of the eye. Um, I did not go in planning for it to be a dual timeline or multi-timeline or multi-perspective novel. It opened originally with that first conversation between Gwen and Myra. That was originally the opening of the book. Really? Uh, yes. Yes. And Gwen, and Gwen was there right away. She was the, she was the stronger speaker and she just, um, and when I, interestingly, when I first started writing them, I hadn't aged them yet. I thought that they were going to be in their 30s, but at first, the first version of that conversation, she really struck me as somebody older. Like she struck me as like this overbearing older neighbor who would come over. But then I realized she wasn't. I just, I, the way they were bantering together, I'm like, no, they've known each other since they were kids. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it, it came to me as the title first. And then as I started writing and those personalities started interacting and the world kind of started, I, I think. I think it would have been a magical story. I don't know why I didn't think of that from the beginning, because to me, miniatures are inherently magical. They're, yeah. just, they're just, you can't have something that small and that detailed and with that much love put into it on that scale. Um, and that, it, it seems magical. It doesn't seem it not to absorb something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it just doesn't seem, I, I actually, um, had this like um i started following a lot of miniatures one thing that went viral um probably a, a, a few months ago now yeah. were these uh, miniatures did you see the miniatures and walnut shells by any chance did you see yes. that video yes the little switches the little lights and everything well of course i saw that and i'm like oh okay well this clearly i have to find one of these so i found right. but i didn't find a, i was looking for a library and i went on um i went on etsy and just right after i searched i found this artist in sri lanka and she made this little Van, oh, he just fell out. Um, it's Van Gogh's bedroom at Arles. It has this little hand carved cherry tree with little handcuffed blossoms. It has a little chair. It has all his little pieces, his self portrait, starry, starry night, a mirror, all sorts of stuff. And I saw this and I went, oh my God. And I had just published a satire piece about Van Gogh. And I went, well, clearly, right. I don't believe in science, right? Of course not. But I really don't believe in science. And I, um, but there just happens to be one. Right, it just happens to be. And so, um, and she and I wound up corresponding online. She was just lovely. Um, she went and read the piece and that kind of thing. But I, 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 that's magical, right? Like you have this weird coincidence. And um, one of the other examples, like the, the Vienna sausages in the book, that's a, that's a real story. My grandfather really did that when I was a kid. 
And it's still a joke in my house that whenever I find there, there are random times that I will, that I, once I, you know, when my husband and I were together for a while and hoping to have a child, I, I pulled over my car one day and I opened up the door and there sitting on the, on the sidewalk, just as if I left it, there was this can of random Vienna sausages. And I called my husband and I said, we're going to have a kid. And he's like, what? I'm like, like, signs. I don't believe in signs. <laughs> I'm like, granddad left me for some Vienna sausages. And he's like, I love you. <laughs> but you <laughs> I was right. I was right. So best thing yeah. ever. So there's just, you know, again, these are these are details that I that I collect. So yeah, I think I think it would have been a mad I don't think I could have written about miniatures, especially yeah. the way I, I react to them and not have a little bit of that magic weave its way through. I love that so much. So, <laughs> oh man. The you mentioned the the book that you wrote uh that did not uh, mm-hmm. publish. And yeah. you know, of all of the the author interviews that I've done. I think that is a very common story. Uh, oh, yeah. Most people have um, a um, a desk drawer novel or a trunk novel, as we used to call them. Yeah. Um, is there any any hope that that um, manuscript will see the light of day? Do Do you have any desire to to rewrite it, or yeah. or yeah. have you like looking back from where you are now? Then looking back on that book, can you tell? what it was about it that just didn't work or was it a story that was just not of the present time? It was a a mystery and it was set, it was set in the foster care system. Mm -hmm. Um, and it included, um, the foster care system, a deadly forest fire orphans and the heroin epidemic. Um, so, which is a nice way of saying it was a lot. Um, it was, uh, it was informed by, you know, some of the work I'd done professionally, but it was also a kind of a gallows humor. It had a lot of yeah. humor in it because it's the way I write anyway. Um, and I do think I, I actually, I, a lot of people who read it really loved it. I think there's some things I could do to make it better, but I, I, I wrote it and half of a sequel, um, after it, um, that kind of, uh, was almost going to be like a mystery series. Um, and I may, I, I would love to think that I could find a home for it someday, maybe even under a pseudonym. Cause it is kind of a, it, there are elements of it that I, I even thought to myself, I'm like, maybe I could make it more magical. It could, it could have some connections to it, but I also, in light of some of its subject matter, I don't necessarily want to lighten that too much and, and somehow I understand. make it less serious, you know? So, um, so I haven't really decided, but my, my, uh, my children and my husband for my birthday, the year before I wrote Mansion, actually, my husband uh, looked up a class online for how to bind books and he bought supplies. He did this by surprise. And my daughter designed a cover for it. Oh, wow. um, and they bound the book and you know, printed it out as, as if it was going to be bound, bound the book, um, put my daughter's cover on the front. And she wrote number one bestseller at the bottom with the R and the E reversed. Um, and so I still, I still have that. And she still asks from time to time, you know, is it, is it going to be a real book? And I'm like, well, it is a real book. And she's like, it's not a real book. <laughs> so maybe someday. Yeah. I love that. Um, 
the minuscule mansion of Myra Malone is out now available everywhere. It came out last week or the week before we couldn't figure out before we started, um, but it's out now you can go to your bookstore and you can grab it off the shelf. Um, with your, uh, your, your parents, uh, your, your familial, your, your parental family, however you say that, um, with the, the language jokes and stuff that you talked about was the alliterative title of this book. Was that kind of a, a nod and a wink to, to your family history? I think, I think a little bit, I think it probably was more English, English major nerd. And you know, I always loved alliteration. I always loved assonance. Um, you know, they, they appear a bunch in poetry. And like I said, since I'm so terrible at writing it, I'm, I'm better at pulling elements of it into other things. Um, and also other magic. Someone else who interviewed me told me that there's a, there's a series of books, middle grade books that are set in the thorn rooms, those miniature rooms that I told you about. And when I went and looked up, uh, the author, I think her name was like Madeline Malone or something like that. I'm like, Mm. (laughs) so, um, but it, the M's were just, I, I, um, I didn't want miniature. I, I wanted a different word. Minuscule was the first one that came to mind. And then that just kind of informed the rest of the title. Well, I absolutely love it. And I think one of the, one of the highest compliments um, that you can pay an author is that when you finish the book, the, the characters in the story uh, are still there. And oh. you, you, you kind of walk around still thinking about yeah. this, the world and, and the way things have worked and how the characters affected you. And um, I'm happy to know that there will be some follow-up in, in this world and with the story. So that, that makes yeah. me very happy. Um, yeah. We're going to put links in the show notes to uh, where you can go grab the minuscule mansion of Myra Malone. Um, Audrey is, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you are up to uh is there a place online where they can find you and connect with you sure um so my website is audreyburgess.com all one word and with just one s um and uh then my um on twitter which is probably where i'm most active i'm at audrey underscore burgess so b-u-r-g-e-s um and on instagram where i'm trying to get better <laughs> i'm at audrey burgess all one word and facebook is a burgess right excellent we'll link all that up to make it easier for folks to find you audrey this has been so much fun chatting please come back and let's do this again i'd love to i thank you so much for having me it was so fun talking to you that's our episode for today there's so much more to come as we talk with authors about the craft of writing but also the business of publishing be sure to subscribe to the Storycraft Cafe podcast in your favorite podcast app to never miss an episode. The Storycraft Cafe is made possible by Dabble. Writing a book is challenging. Your writing tool shouldn't be. Dabble is an easy-to-use online writing tool packed with helpful features that allow beginning novelists and published authors to create amazing stories. Visit us at DabbleWriter.com and start your free trial. Thanks for listening.